Have you ever done something or said something that you wish that you could take back, something you regretted? Reminds me of a story of a gentleman who was a policeman that was playing in an amateur uh, baseball league, and when he stood up to take his first bat, he noticed that the umpire was calling the ball and strikes that he recognized him, and then he realized it was a guy that he had given a ticket to the day before. And so he said to him, he says, uh, no hard feelings, uh, you won't hold a grudge against me, will you? And the umpire looked at him and he said, you better swing at everything. <laughs> now on a more serious note, in Genesis, the 25th chapter, it says there was a man by the name of Isaac who had two sons. His older son was named Esau, his younger son was named Jacob. One day, his older son Esau went into the forest to hunt, and as he was coming back, he got to the edge of the forest. He saw his younger brother there, Jacob, who was cooking a bean soup. He was very hungry because he'd been out all day, and he said, can I have some of that bean soup? And his brother said, you can have it, but it's going to cost you your birthright. Now, understand this about the birthright. Uh, if you were a Hebrew person and you were the firstborn, you received the birthright. And the birthright meant that when your dad died, that you'd receive double inheritance of all of your siblings. Now, part of that was because you would be the head of the family and you would be charged with caring for everyone. But all, along with that uh, double inheritance came a special blessing from God. Now, keep that in mind as Esau said, well, what good would my birthright do if I died of starvation? The ultimate hyperbole, huh? Which reminds us, don't ever underestimate our ability to rationalize when we want to commit a sin, right? We have that ability, and that's really what Esau was doing. And he sold his birthright for some bean soup. In Hebrews, as it talks about this Old Testament story in the 12th chapter, it says in verse 16 that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. Regrets. We all have them. And there's not anything we can do to go back and undo what we have done, but we do have a choice as followers of Jesus Christ with what we do with our regrets in the future. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, which is our main text today. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can find it there on the back of your guide. It's written there for your convenience. 2 Corinthians seven ten, Paul writes, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world, it produces death. Now, he tells us here in this passage that there's two types of sorrow. There's two types of regret. <clears throat> One, the Bible calls a godly sorrow. And that's not a bad thing. That's something that God wants all of us to experience. But it also says that there's a second kind of sorrow, and it is a worldly sorrow. <clears throat> now, the difference is, is that the godly sorrow or regret leads to repentance, Repentance means to change one's mind or to change one's direction. And, and those of us who've come to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's exactly what happened. We had a sorrow. It came to a point where we had a sorrow because of the fact that we had lived our life separate from God. And that sorrow led to repentance, which produced salvation. That's a good sorrow because it's going somewhere. It's a good sorrow because it doesn't stay where it's at. 
in 1 John, the first chapter, verse 8, it says this. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word there in verse 9, the word confess, it literally means to agree with God. When we agree with God that what he says is wrong is wrong, what he says is right is right, and the promise there is that if we have that kind of sorrow, that it leads to salvation. In other words, if we plead innocent when God comes and he convicts us, then we are condemned. But if we admit our guilt, we are found innocent. Kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Reminds me of a story of a king who was worried about the people who had been placed in prison in his kingdom. And so he went to the prison and he went from cell to cell to ask the people if they were really guilty for the crime that they had committed. And person after person said, oh no, I'm not guilty. I never did that. I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. Until finally he came to one cell where there was a humble man and when he was asked about his own guilt, he admitted it. And he said, yes, I'm wrong. I did what I was accused of and I'm so sorry for it. I'm so broken and now I'm paying the price for it. And the king said, quickly release this guilty man lest he contaminate all the innocent people here in this prison. <laughs> Friends, that's what happens when we agree with God. When we repent, when we change our mind about living a life that is separate from God. That is the kind of sorrow or regret that God wants us to have because that kind of sorrow leads to salvation. Now compare that with the sorrow of the world. The sorrow of the world is a sorrow that said, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry about the consequences that have come my way. A worldly sorrow is a sorrow that throws a self pity party and eventually you drown in your regret. <clears throat> I grew up not too far from here in an area of Dallas known as Pleasant Grove. And that's where I attended uh, elementary school. And the elementary school that I attended was called the Nathaniel Hawthorne Elementary School. Now, I went there for several years before I realized why they called it Nathaniel Hawthorne. It was, written, it was named after an American author who in 1850 wrote the book that most of us are familiar with called The Scarlet Letter. You remember that story about a, a lady in early America who, who gets pregnant and she's not married. So everybody knows what's happening. So they drag her to the city square and they monogram on her dress a scarlet A, the scarlet letter, so that she would be labeled for the rest of her life as one who had committed adultery, that she would be defined by her past. Now what they didn't know is that there was a minister in town who had actually had, had this relationship with her, but no one knew about that. And he would go every day into a lonely place and he would literally take a whip and he would whip his back trying to atone for his own sin, living in that worldly regret, not trusting in the atonement provided by Jesus Christ. Now that's a fictional story. It was perhaps inspired by the real story that we read about in the New Testament where a woman who had been caught in adultery was brought before Jesus. You remember they challenged Jesus. They were trying to track and trip, uh, trip up Jesus, trick him, trap him. And they said, well, what should we do with this woman? And they were all standing there with stones ready to stone her to death because of this crime that she had committed. And Jesus said, let the person without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, her accusers dropped their stones and they turned and walked away. And Jesus asked the woman, he said, where are your accusers? And she said, there are none. 
He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In other words, he told her, confess, agree with God that what you've done is wrong. Repent, turn, and walk a different direction. And there is redemption in that kind of sorrow. In the book of Revelations, Satan is called the great accuser. And in that passage, it says that he accuses the children of God day and night. And what he wants to do is he wants to label us. He wants to define us by our past. What he wants to do is put an L on us for liar. He wants to put a, a T on us for thief. He wants to put a D on us for divorce. He wants to put an A on us for adultery or abortion. But God wants to monogram on our heart the letter G for grace, that we are God's children. Don't miss this because even those of us who are believers, those of us who've been forgiven, Satan tries to accuse us day and night concerning our past. Don't miss this. Satan gets a victory when he gets us as believers to step outside of God's will for our life and to disobey God. And we do that as believers even. But he gets a second victory, an equally great victory for him when he gets us to spend all of our time looking back at sins that have already been forgiven in a kind of worldly regret that will eventually drown us. In Romans, the eighth chapter, in verse one, it says this, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to me very carefully. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, you, you live under a condemnation. You don't have to, but you do. But if you've ever come to a point in your life that you've invited Jesus Christ into your life to forgive you, if you came to that point to say, I want to confess, I want to agree with God that the life I'm living separate from God is wrong, and you repented, you changed your mind, you headed in a new direction, and you asked Jesus not only to be your Savior, but also to be your Lord. Here's what the Scripture says. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Full forgiveness is our present reality. And understand this, there is no gradation when it comes to forgiveness. You're either fully guilty before God today or you are fully forgiven. There is nothing in between. In Psalms 103, it says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Uh, about a month ago, I was in Israel and I visited a home where... Uh, with the help of Lake Point, it's, we've created a, a prayer house where people from all nations can come and pray there, not only for Jerusalem, but for all the world. And it used to be the residence of a, a gentleman who wrote that song, It Is Well With My Soul. And, and, and that song was written, those of you who know the story, because he had lost some loved ones who were, who were drowned. And he actually wrote that song as he was on a boat on the way to the funeral over the area where he lost those loved ones. And he wrote that song. And usually when we think about that song, we think about it providing comfort for us. It is well with my soul. God meets me in my grief. He comforts me. But there's a verse to that song that sometimes we miss. Listen to the verse. It says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. See, there's a kind of grief. There's a kind of sorrow that's 
as deep as losing someone that you love dearly, and it is the loss of innocence. And God can restore that innocence to us when he provides for us forgiveness. I remember a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a, a program that I was watching, the news broadcast was interrupted with a, with a news alert, some grand news that was coming on. It was that they had found a knife on the estate of O.J. Simpson. And I thought, who cares? The gentleman's already been tried. Have you heard of double jeopardy? You cannot be tried for the same crime more than once. And he's already been declared innocent. So this, is, this doesn't mean anything. Even if there, was a, there wasn't a broken chain of evidence, it still would not matter. Long before the American justice system established double jeopardy, the scripture says that you and I cannot be held accountable for that which God has already forgiven us. He will remember our sins no more. In Hebrews, the eighth chapter, verse 12, it says this, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Spoiler alert, this is the answer to one of the Bible trivia questions. What's one of the things that God can't do? One of the things that God can't do is he cannot remember a sin that he has already forgiven. And when Satan comes and he tries to accuse you and he tries to get you to look back at past sin that you have already confessed, that you've already come to agree with God about, that you have already repented of, that you've already changed your mind, you take him to the cross and you show him that that sin has been nailed to the cross and you pray to God and you say, but God, Satan is accusing me of this. And here's what God will say to you. He says, I distinctly remember forgetting that sin. He will have new mercy for us and he will forget or not remember our iniquity. The problem is that we have a tendency to project our self-condemnation upon ourselves. We have a, a tendency to define ourselves by what we have done wrong rather than by what Christ has done right. We song, sang a song earlier in the, in the service, and, and I think sometimes, you know, the songs that we sing are so great and we get caught up in them, but sometimes I'm afraid we don't pause to think about the meaning of those songs. You may have sung this a moment ago and not even realize you were singing it. It says, our sin was strong, but Jesus is stronger. Our shame was great, but Jesus is greater. You say, Steve, you don't understand what I've done. No, no, you don't understand what Jesus did. Jesus is a better Savior than you're a sinner. See, I think one of the, one of the things that happens is we confuse condemnation with conviction. There is a difference. Condemnation is what Satan brings. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is where we have a sorrow or a guilt or a regret over sin that has already been confessed, that has already been forgiven. Conviction, on the other hand, that's a godly sorrow. And by the way, you can have a godly sorrow as a follower of Christ because the conviction is a sorrow or a regret for an un confess sin when we first come to become believers we don't confess all of our individual sins that would be impossible for us to do 
We come instead and we confess a lifestyle. We say, God, I was living separate from you. I was in control of my own life. And I'm asking you to forgive me of all my sins. I can't remember all of them, but I'm asking you to forgive all of them. And he does that. That's called justification. And what happens with justification, it is just as if you never sinned. There is a sense, don't miss this, there is a sense in which we are saved past, present, and future. And you see this all through the scripture. We are, first of all, we are saved from the power of sin. And the day that you invited Jesus Christ into your life, you could no longer be condemned. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Every sin that you had ever committed or ever would commit was forgiven at that moment. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That ought to cause great gratitude to rise in your heart. But there is also a sense in which he is saving us, present tense. He's not saving us from the, pow- the, pun- the punishment of sin. That's been done. But now he's saving us from the very power that sin has in our daily life. And that's why in 1 John it tells us that we're to confess our sins. Do you realize that the book of 1 John was written to Christians? And yet it says that, that we're to confess our sins. And not in the sense that if we don't confess a sin and then we die before we confess it, that we'll go to hell. That's kind of a spiritual Russian roulette. No, no, no. All of the punishment of sin has been taken away. So why are we confessing sins? We're confessing sins because we need it. What does he say here? I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And there's a process called sanctification where we're made into saints by the power of God as we confess our sins because what happens is it keeps our, our, our relationship with Christ right. It keeps that relationship current. And we are literally cleansed of the sin which we've already been forgiven of, but we're cleansed of that sin and that's an important process. You say, but Steve, I, I, I find myself committing the same sin over and over. Yes, the Bible speaks to that. It's not a surprise. The Bible is called the besetting sin. You have your besetting sins. I have my besetting sins. Paul spoke about when he said, the very thing that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he said, the answer was your deep relationship with Christ. Don't miss this. We're to keep on confessing those sins because in the process of doing so, what happens is God forgives us. He cleanses us. He reminds us that that grace covers that sin. And your tendency when you commit a sin as a Christian is to pull back away from the Lord as if the Lord is mad at you or he doesn't want to have anything to do with you. That's the last thing you want to do. What you want to do is you want to come to the Lord as quick as possible and agree with him that that is wrong, to repent, to change your mind. And here's what he wants to happen. He wants you to confess that sin over and over and over again so that he can remind you of his grace that is sufficient over and over again until finally grace wins out. It's not guilt and it's not shame that will keep you from sinning. It is the grace of God. It is the gratitude for a God that keeps on giving his grace. In Lamentations, the third chapter, in verse 22, it says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Every year they come up with a new flu vaccine because there's a new flu that needs a new vaccine. Well, guess what? Every day that you and I live, even as believers, we need new mercies, don't we? And here's what the scripture says. It says that his mercies are new every morning. 
Coming up in May, I'm going to turn 63, and I will be only five mercies short of 23,000 mercies that are brand new that God provides for me every day. Isn't that great? His mercies are new. There's a, there's a bank of mercy, and that bank never closes. And in that bank, all of my sins are put on Jesus' account, and that's why he died on the cross. And all of his righteousness is imputed unto me. And, and so God wants us to be convicted. He does, but he doesn't want us to be condemned. And there's a difference between the two. By the way, Satan will never come and bug you about stuff that you haven't confessed yet. He wants to stay away from that stuff. He doesn't want you paying attention to it. But the Holy Spirit will come and talk to you about those sins as a believer that you have not confessed because he wants you to be convicted and he wants you to keep a short account. He doesn't want you to go here. He wants you to go quickly beyond this. And by the way, listening to the Holy Spirit is a package deal. There are many of us that are here that want to hear from the Holy Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit to guide us. We want to know what God's perfect will is for our life. But friends, you cannot use the Holy Spirit as a GPS and not be under his conviction. It's a package deal. And if you're going to listen to the Holy Spirit, you're going to listen to him about what you're doing wrong as well as guidance about where to go in the future. It's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Condemnation only comes from the evil one. To batter us down. I had a gentleman after the last service came out and he said, I want to get this straight. You mean if I have prayed and I have asked God to forgive me of a sin, I don't have to keep doing it over and over and over and over again. And I said, that's exactly right. And he just broke out and cried. He said, I'm so glad to be done with that. I said, that's right, because God wants you to move forward. God wants you to think you have. So here, here's what the devil wants to do. The devil wants to blackmail us with our past. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to take every one of our regrets and he wants to nail them to the cross. And then he wants to resurrect them in their glorified form. What do I mean by that? I mean that he'll take our past mistakes and he never meant for us to make those mistakes. He never meant for us to commit those sins. But you know what? If you'll confess, if you'll agree with God about that sin, if you'll repent, if you'll change your mind and head a new direction, you can hand that sin to him and God will make something good out of it. Chuck Colson, uh, some of you remember from the Nixon era, was the henchman for Nixon. And he was caught and he was convicted of his crimes. And here was one who was had all this great influence. He was an advisor to the president of the United States, had great money, had great status, and all of a sudden, he lost it all. And right before he went to prison, as he was standing in the driveway of his home, he confessed his sin. He repented. And he asked God to save him. He still went to prison. There were still consequences, physical consequences of, of the sin that he had committed. But he went through that prison experience and he gave it to the Lord. He asked the Lord to use that. And as he came out of that, he established the prison fellowship. And one day there will be tens of thousands of ex-prisoners who will be in heaven for eternity. Because he allowed his regrets to be nailed to the cross. And then he allowed the risen Lord to resurrect his regrets in their glorified form. And he used the very thing that he was sorry for, that he was ashamed of to be a vehicle to love and care for others. See, it's the difference between what happened to Simon Peter 
who when the Lord was walking on the beach, he didn't jump in the boat and swim the other way, but on that northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, he jumped in the water and he swam toward Jesus. And Jesus and him did their business on the shore that day. And they talked about how he had denied the Lord. And what happened on that walk is that the regrets of Simon Peter were nailed to the cross. And they were resurrected in their glorified form when he stood to preach to those 3,000 that were saved a few days later. Compare that to the worldly sorrow of Judas, who when he realized how stupid he had been and how he betrayed his friend, he got stuck in that regret and it drowned him so much so that he went to a potter's field and he hung himself. And the end result was death. There's not a thing in the world that you can do about your past. And you know what the great news is? Is you don't have to. Jesus has already done something about your past and mine. But you and I could do a lot about our future. We can avoid future regrets by allowing God to forgive our past and to move toward the future and live in gratitude and in grace. Let's thank God for that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for being a redeemer of even the worst that we do. We thank you that you're a better savior than we are a sinner and that your grace really is sufficient for all things. I pray, dear Father, that you would allow us to move forward, not because we create an attitude that says, I can do anything I want to do and God will forgive me, but rather to be so grateful for what you have forgiven us that we want to live our life fully for you. I thank you, dear Father, that our best days are ahead of us and our past really is history. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.